Hi, this is Ian Shaw, and you're listening to the Mark and Me podcast. Farewell and adieu to you, fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you, ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so nevermore shall we see you again. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark, and coming up on today's episode, it's going to be very, very Jaws focused. Now, you know just me saying the word Jaws makes me excited, and I'm even more excited to announce that Ian Shaw, the son of Robert Shaw himself, will be joining me to talk all about his brand new project, The Shark is Broken. So yeah, As a huge Jaws fan, it's no secret my favourite film ever made is Jaws, and I own pretty much everything you can buy from this film. (laughs) I'm absolutely thrilled that he's going to be on today's show. But in normal, typical, true Mark and Me fashion, let's touch base about the last episode. It was very music-focused, and I was joined by Zach Farrow from the band Paramore and Half Noise. A great, great interview... Numbers were insane, it's now my third most downloaded podcast I've ever released, and that's pretty good considering it's only been just over a week. I'm sure it'll get to that number one spot in a very, very short while. What I really liked is the feedback from everyone, not just because of Paramore, but also all the people that went and then checked out Half Noise. I saw loads of people screenshotting themselves listening on Spotify and Apple Music, saying that because of the interview they then went and checked out this band, And they absolutely loved it. And that's what I want to do. I want to bring new things to people. And to know all those people that listened to Zach. Enjoyed his honesty. How down to earth he was. And then invested their time in listening to his new band. Everyone absolutely loved it. So for me it was absolutely awesome to see. And I know Zach was thrilled by the response as well. So thanks for everyone who took the time to listen to that episode. So let's get back into Jaws. Something I could talk about for literally hours and hours every day. And if you ever met me or you do meet me, that's pretty much what I do anyway. So to put it onto an episode and put it out there for you guys, it's a dream come true. Ian at the moment is currently touring in Edinburgh as you're listening to this for The Shark is Broken, which is his whole show all about Jaws. I've not been lucky enough to see it, but it has just been on in Brighton and a couple of people that I follow on Twitter that are quite good friends. The Daily Jaws and Barking Mad About Films have both been to see it and said it's astonishing. The performance that he portrays of his father, who in my opinion is one of the best actors of all time, but the character himself of Quint is my favourite film character of all time. People said he does it justice and does it so, so well. So I'm very excited. I hope that we get some more UK dates and it's a huge success so we get to see this show because it's a dream for me to see it. But to know he's joined me on the podcast is the next best thing. And it's such a great interview. He's so honest. He opens up so much and is just one of the nicest people I've spoken to. So I think I've juiced you all up enough now. So let's get straight to the interview. 
Here is me and Ian Shaw talking all about The Shark is Broken. So Ian, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. You're welcome. I wanted to start by taking it right back to the start and when you were a kid growing up and maybe at school, what was it you actually wanted to be when you were such a uh, such a young age? Well, I wanted to be an actor at, at quite a young age, actually. So it was probably, I would say, about eight. But I had a, I had a wonderful drama teacher, Michael Walsh, who basically who um, would direct the school plays. Yeah. And he was he was very ambitious. He would always do uh, plays that were harder to do than, like for example, we did like Terence Rattigan. I remember we did uh, Adventure Story, which was about Alexander the Great. So I played Alexander the Great, and I had to have a nervous breakdown, you know. That That's quite um, heavy for a uh, primary school. To, I, I was doing stuff like a dinosaur <laughs> fighting another dinosaur. I'm quite surprised. Um, actually, I mean, that, that I, I say that when I was eight, because that's probably when I wanted to be an actor, so you yeah. would have done something like that more at the age of 12. But, yeah. I mean, even so, the parents were always uh, uh, kind of amazed at how... Uh, you know, sophisticated the, the 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 plays that we were putting on. So I thought he was amazing. He was quite inspiring. Obviously, that's a huge influence. And having a teacher, even now, I look back at some of my primary school and secondary school teachers as helping shaping the person I am today. But was there certain films you were watching or actors on the TV that you were kind of taking a strong interest in? Yeah, um, I'm one of those people who um, perhaps it's a little bit annoying, but I like an awful lot of, you know, I try to absorb and, um, you know, take the good from, from a lot of people. Yeah. So um, I, I like a lot of uh, American film actors, um, always have done. I suppose the slightly more obscure ones would be actors like Rod Steiger, James Coburn, I really like, even though obviously he was very uh, famous and popular, um, but now less so. And, you know, my goodness, you know, absolutely adore, um, uh, you know, De Niro and, um, you know, Hoffman and all all of those amazing actors. Um, Christopher Walken, even when he's in a terrible movie, is... Um, really hard to take your eyes off. Um, He's always the best thing, isn't he? Even if even if it's a bad film, you'll still appreciate the work he does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jack Nicholson. You know, all, all the all the kind of cliche um, actors. But um, yeah, um, I've, I'm a, a cinephile like yourself. Um, so um, yeah, I've spent too much time watching movies and too much time watching TV. But um, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> So what about what about movies? What were the sort of movies your parents would sit you down and watch as a kid? Because obviously, with them both being actors, yeah. surely it, were they were they happy to let you watch whatever you wanted, or were they kind of pretty much? Actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to sneak down. We, we lived in um, Beverly Hills at one point, and, I, and we there was a Channel Z, which uh, was twenty four hour movies. You know, I think they were mostly black and white movies. You know, pretty harmless. You know, certainly nothing, um, you know, that a kid couldn't safely watch. Um, but I would sneak down, you know, at f- before, you know, before everyone was awake at five o'clock in the morning and I'd figure out how to work, work the TV. This would be like aged five or six. Wow. And, and just, um, you know, sit, uh, you know, one foot away from the TV and, and watch all these kind of like, you know, cowboy movies and film noirs and things. 
<laughs> That's some great films for such a young age. I was watching stuff like Ghostbusters and, you know, the the, the classic sort of Poltergeist would be the film that I'd try and sneak while my parents not being around. But you're watching some actual decent, very well-made films. Well, I don't know how good they were. You know, and I watched <laughs> all the other things as well. I loved Sesame Street when I was, like, a kid. Yeah. The Electric Company. So then yeah, you were, te- you were telling I'm, me at secondary school you were kind of acting and, you, you know, you had this strong influence of a very strong teacher. But at what point did you realise that hopefully it become a reality that you could make that a profession? Because when you were a kid, everyone wants to be Robert De Niro or a famous footballer. Mm. But at what point did you think, this is actually what I want to do? I'm an adult now and I want to do this. Well, I mean, you know, coming from... Um, both my parents were actors, so my dad was uh, an actor, but also my mum was an actor, and they were both successful. So I guess um, it never really occurred to me that I wouldn't be. Um, and so once I was interested in doing it, I thought, well, you know, this is this is what I want to do, um, aged eight, and it hasn't, it never changed really. So I think I, I, I did, actually, I do remember making a promise to myself that. Um, I would give myself a lot of time. I, I was saying it's probably going to take a long time for you to be able to uh, be doing, you know, m- you know, movies and things. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that was my little wise eight-year-old head saying, sort of, you know, you know, work hard and stick at it. So, you know, it was at a very young age. Um, I just thought this is the most, you know, fun to be had you know dressing up and re- you know researching people trying to figure out who they were and pretending to be them um for a living seemed to be um you know Im- impossibly great fun i have not wavered since i was eight years old that's good and you've been consistent yeah i have been consistent i wouldn't i wouldn't pretend that it hasn't been hard and harder than i thought yeah um uh but you know that's 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 what it is I mean, when you were in your 20s and you were acting, did you have that pressure because your parents were so well-established and so well-known? I mean, let's be honest about it, your father's career is legacy, so it must have been quite hard to think, how am I going to be in the same kind of realm as that? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I think I was protected by my own enormous ego when I was in my 20s. Yeah. So um, I just thought that... um, you know, it wasn't going to be a problem, that. So that issue never arose. And then in my, you know, 30s, there was kind of transition of thought. And but and then in my 40s, you're just that much wiser and more forgiving. And so I've tried to focus less on sort of any kind of competition between us, of which my, if, if I was going to, you know, try and enter into that, my dad would win on every count. Um, and focus on, you know, what I have enjoyed and what I'm proud of in my own career. Um, and funnily enough, having you know written The Shark is Broken with uh, Joseph Nixon, which is about my dad, but it's almost the thing I'm most proud of because um, it's, it's my own work, well, and Joe's. I want to come to that in a moment, but what I wanted to know is kind of at what age were you when your parents were showing you the work that they had done? I don't remember them because they died when I was very young. You yeah. Know? Um, so five and eight. 
Um, so, I mean, I remember seeing. I remember, I remember seeing Jaws, for example. Yeah. Uh, and being scared. That would probably be about eight, actually, and thinking that there were sharks swimming around my bed, um, and calling out for my dad, and you know. Um, not doing a double take that Quint was coming in to save me, you yeah. know, even though he had obviously been eaten. That was that, you know, that wasn't a problem for me to rationalise. Um, um, it's a bit too young to remember, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, their movies, I guess, you know, I've I tended to watch, you know, them, them later on, I suppose. Yeah. Were, were you ever lucky enough to go on set of any of the films? Yeah, we went on set several times. Yeah. Um, uh, I remember um, really enjoying being on the set of The Scarlet Buccaneer. Um, yeah. Because there were actors like James Earl Jones, and I remember him, you know, being very friendly to um, us as children and, you know, just being surrounded by all these pirates, and uh, it seemed incredibly... Um, good fun but most of the sets i went on to were incredibly uh boring uh tedious places you know where you just um where nothing's happening really yeah almost more than anywhere else in the world there's there's less activity because i think most of the time they're just setting up the shots so you have these huge thick cables snaking everywhere and uh um all these people kind of hanging around but nobody seems to be doing anything and then all of a sudden you know it uh breaks into life and they and they actually do something so i remember going on the set um i can't remember was it pinewood anyway they wherever they filmed force 10 from navarone and we were sat around for ages and ages with nothing going on and then they blew up the dam um, so it was an enormous explosion and dust sort of settling. That was one memory I have of being on that set. I remember going onto the set of Jaws and seeing Bruce, the shark. You know, they, they showed me uh, the face of the shark, um, which was um, top secret. I wasn't aware at the time how privileged I was to be in that position. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, we, we traveled. When, whenever my dad was, was doing stuff, we traveled as much as possible. Uh, with him, he wanted to be with his family, so um, you know we would go on sets whenever uh, we had the opportunity. And do you remember the first proper time that you really appreciated watching Jaws and seeing the performance that your dad gave that I believe should have won an Oscar? <laughs> That's very kind of you. Um, I do remember it. I remember being completely um, uh, spellbound and petrified, like everybody else. You know um, the. Uh, Ben Gardner's boat moment and um, and all the other things. I mean, it's a brilliant film, and um, I guess that it was more almost when I was like twelve and I watched it again, and I was going, "This movie holds together incredibly well." Yeah, it's hard to find fault. You know, maybe just the shark at the end is kind of like one of the things, but I mean, even so, in in the day, awesome. Yeah. I, I literally can't fault it. If anyone asks me straight away, what's your favourite film? It's Jaws. Why? Because it's the perfect film. It's got the perfect cast. It's got some of the best dialogue. It's a great mm. story. And it's just a big blockbuster that shouldn't have worked as well as it did because of all the production problems and the delays mm. and Steven Spielberg's second ever film. And it's just 
it is a masterpiece. It's absolutely flawless. Yeah, I mean, I I, 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 I agree. I think it is. I mean, I know that if, if my dad wasn't in it, I would, I would love the film. Yeah. And also, he, uh, Spielberg, avoids sentiment in that film, where I think once or twice later on, I, I find I, I drift away from him a little bit because of, you know, like, for example, Jurassic Park, you know, is, is a really good film, but I, I wished that the music... Um, I wish he'd got John Williams to do the same kind of thing that he did with Jaws and, and make the music scary rather than reassuring. Yeah. See, now I want to see that film. I want to see a completely different soundtrack to that and see how it works. That's just in yeah. my head now. I'm imagining exactly. it, thinking, wow, that whole T-Rex scene and all the the mission of running mm. away from these dinosaurs, instead of it being all, oh, it's going to be okay, it's not, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, you're going to die. Take my money now. I want to see that. Yeah. And obviously you just touched base and mentioned there about your new show, The Shark is Broken. Um, I'm sure you've been asked this many times, but for the listeners out there, how how did this come about? Because it's it's quite uh, late in your career that you've decided to take on this. Yeah, I mean, some years ago I did um, a television, a drama documentary about Hiroshima. Um, and I was playing Colonel Tibbetts, who was the pilot of the Enola Gay, who... Uh, dropped the bomb on 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 Hiroshima, and um, it, I just found that odd because obviously my dad makes this speech in Jaws about being on the USS Indianapolis where they deliver the bomb. So I felt that's a strange thing to be sort of getting the atomic bomb from my dad and then going and dropping it on Japan. Obviously, not literally. We were playing characters, yeah. his fictional mind, not, but. Even so, I thought that was a that was a sort of odd thing. So that kind of stuck in my mind a little bit. And then I don't know. A series of coincidences happened. I looked. At, I had a moustache a couple of years ago, and I looked in the mirror and I thought that I looked like Quint. And uh, and then I checked and I found that I was the the similar age. Then I reread Carl Gottlieb's The Jaws Log, which, um, if anyone hasn't read it, is um, one of the best books on filmmaking, you know, on documenting uh, how a film is made and what goes on that I've ever read. And, of course, it had all those elements in there about, you know, the relationships not always being, you know, sunshine and roses. So then I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. So I kind of sketched out uh, a rough idea for the play... And then I kind of became a bit ashamed, you know, because I, I didn't want to kind of trade, um, you know, on my dad, um, because that's something I tried to avoid in my life, um, you know, because it it just looks cheap. But then, you know, I discussed it with a writer friend of mine, and I, I discussed it with my wife and some friends, and they were all kind of pushing me in, in, the, in, a, in the most lovely way. Yeah. To at least explore um, what it what it could be, you know, I I read some of my dad's private diaries when he was um, battling with alcohol, and and then I thought, well, that's some that's an interesting issue that I think people would like to, you know, would be interested in exploring, you know, if I took it seriously. 
so then the whole kind of thing snowballed me and uh, you know joseph nixon who's the co-writer uh kind of tipped me over the edge and persuaded me to have a go at writing it um and then i really enjoyed what he wrote and so we were you know we were firing you know a page or two back and forth over a period of of weeks you know and then i showed it to guy masterson who i really respect as a director and you know the whole thing just kind of snowballed yeah and here we are really so when you were actually writing this and it became reality and i know you said that for a moment you'd kind of put it on the shelf and not thought any more about it when the reality mm. came about that you had someone you had a director you had these people involved that you trust how did it go about with actually thinking about the casting because obviously like you said, it's uncanny when you've got this moustache how much you look like your father, but that's not it. We also need to look at Hooper and Brody. How did you even think about what we're going to do to get these you know, vit- well, vital members part of this, this show? I had somebody in mind for Shida, who is somebody I greatly respect as an actor and, and, who's, and who is a friend of mine Yeah, um, that I've worked with before. So he was kind of always... Um, penciled in um, and then you know he wanted to do it so that was great Um, as far as finding uh, Liam Murray Scott it was uh, I've never met him before so it was just a question of auditioning so um, you know we put out the word and um, uh, we kind of whittled it down to a, a short list of you know, 10 actors, and then, um, you know, um, we auditioned them, and and he was wonderful. So, you know, we were all in, in agreement that he was he was to be the one. Um, it's a very odd thing, actually, because I spent all my life coming in an audition room, you know, nervous and trying to impress people. And when you're on the other end, and it was the first time I'd sat there auditioning people, you really feel for the... Uh, person coming in the room. <laughs> um, I kind of wish I'd done it before um, to get some perspective. Um, it's uh, you really want them to be great. Yeah. And you really um, have great respect, actually, because it's a hell of a thing to do to walk in a room and um, perform and get a job. I think. Do, do you think yeah. you're probably a bit more lenient or? understanding because you've been on the other side and you're not just the guy with a clipboard saying next yeah i mean i think they inevitably inevitably yes. yeah yeah you, you um you really know what they're going through and um yeah i i hope so i mean i i i called everyone who didn't get the part to you know to talk to them about it and thank them because they're all really good you know um most people would just get a, a standard template email saying you've been unsuccessful or not here at all. So to know they get a personal phone call probably means a lot. Yeah, well, actually, in my experience, it's it's you just don't hear anything at all. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and once or twice you 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 be, you get told that the job is yours, and then you still don't hear anything, and then it's it's kind of melted away. <laughs> and that's a horrible one. That's happened a couple of times. That's awful. Um, but, um, oh, but, you know, my God, um, actors like to complain, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> one of those. What I wanted to know is when you were actually preparing for the role of Quint, and Quint is such an iconic character, and I think to go and actually take on the role that your father did so well, 
was there anything that you discovered about him or you had a new respect or was it emotionally quite hard and draining to take on that role because surely when you were researching and watching the clips again it must have it must have really brought home the fact that unfortunately he's no longer here and how much of a loss he is that's a great question um yeah i mean you you um i it was definitely emotional yeah no question but i but i definitely would would also uh, label it as a positive experience because um i did discover things about him that i didn't know um you know i read all the newspaper interviews he ever gave and what and watched as many uh, clips of him being interviewed as well and you know um spoke to family and um you know um I, I have I come away with more respect for him. I think his, you know, his thinking was was very sound in a lot of ways, um, and sympathy for him as well. You know, in the struggles that he had. Um, occasionally, there are some. There are one or two times where you kind of wince a little bit, um, but you know, um, that's family. Um, and so, yeah, I found it to be, because I, I thought, you know, when he died, I was obviously devastated. And then my grief seemed to last for about 10 years. So um, by the time I was becoming to be an adult, I sort of felt that I'd finished the grieving process. And then it's only now from having sort of, you know, dug around and done all this research and written about him and started to play him that I actually feel oddly that it is kind of the last um I guess you'd call it an appendix to to grief you know yeah a really positive experience yeah I mean you mentioned only a moment ago about reading some of his diary entries and journals that he did and I, I, that must be very raw I think you could it must be I couldn't even put myself in that mindset to even open that first page it just must be uh, a lot of respect for you for doing that. Yeah, um, you're right. I mean, it is very, um, it is very, you know, um, raw. But, but I don't know. It's kind of like you, you know. It's good also to, at some point in your life, to kind of. Um, you know, open the cupboards and, you know, and, and, and see what's in them. So, um, you know, and I think also the the thing when you're making, uh, you know, I was going to say art, that sounds very pretentious. Um, you know, when you're telling a story so that you're, you're kind of recycling all these kind of, um, good and bad things to turn them into something else, it just seems to be a, a process that uh, um, that feels positive uh, in the end. So, um, you know, because I'm hoping that some people will see the play and because we do, you know, um, show my dad drinking quite heavily. I, I think that's fair enough to say without giving too much about away yeah. about the play. I guess people would expect that. Um, and... You know, we don't shy away from that, and you know, I I hope that 
people will think about that, you know, because, you know, those are some of the the issues that, you know, we have in society that, that we that we need to address. I don't want to spoil too much because I know people listening will hopefully go and get a ticket to see the play, but do you touch base on kind of the, the friction between your father and Dreyfus? Because we've read about some of the stuff that's happened and obviously in Carl's book it touches upon it, but we do hear about the the onset friction and the, the fact that they probably weren't that friendly and they were getting on each other's nerves quite a lot, or do you try and avoid that? Uh, no, I mean, that's a central, that would be a central theme of the of the piece would be the re- the relationships um and um you know it's um the relationship between dreyfus and shaw as far as i'm uh, aware um wasn't simple no so you know i i guess i would kind of think of it as in my mind and i hope this wouldn't be considered to be in any way uh pejorative but um i would kind of think of it as as a sort of italian russian uh irish um thing you know where you can go you can go from one temperature to another quite quickly yeah that's good Um, I mean, it's, it's juicing me up now to watch the play, and I wish I could see it and then talk to you again, because I've got so many questions, but I don't want to ruin it. It's kind of like seeing a trailer for a film. Sometimes I want to, to get excited, but then it leaves me on the edge of my seat thinking, I need to see it now. Well, you know, um, that's that's terrific. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled that um, you feel that way. As I'm speaking to you right now, you're you're currently rehearsing, and um, how how is it going? Are you enjoying it? Is there any challenges that you're finding you weren't prepared for, or is it going without you know a silly pun? Is it going swimmingly? You know, is it going well? It's going very well, um, and I was imagining it to be a, a, you know a harder process, but um, the people I'm working with, I think, are very behaving you know they're just very professional and um so um i'm really really pleased with where we are um we've had to lose uh some of it so that was uh, tricky to, to know which bits to cut because for edinburgh we're doing um 70 minutes um and we had 90 minutes wow um, quite a lot of editing yeah so um, things have had to hit the cutting room floor, and um, but you know they'll probably come back if we need to. If we're going to tour, if we if we were going to do a tour, it would probably you know those things would probably come back in. But you know that's really good as well. It's very interesting, you know, um, that process of having to figure out what you need to weed out, and. Um, the most liberating thing in the world and the, and the nicest feeling was coming home after rehearsal and feeling that a line was a problem and then just sitting down and writing a new one um, and not being lazy, not, not doing that thing, you know, I don't mean, you know, when actors just aren't, you know, trying to figure out whether there is a way to do it, but just knowing that something is wrong and correcting it as best you can um, was was one of the nicest feelings. You feel like you're in control. Um, 
which I've I haven't felt for most of my life. You know, I felt like I'm, uh, you know, an actor for hire, and uh, um, you know that 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 um, that was liberating. And you just mentioned then it's going to be playing at the Edinburgh Festival now. If all goes well, is the vision and the hope that you then get to do a tour and do a number of venues with this instead of just being a few shows? Would you like the actual play to go, you know, across Europe or even, you know, across the pond? It's a great question. I mean, we're really going to have to see what the reception is. Obviously, if it if it's a if it's a disaster, then we would have to. Uh, rethink obviously conceptually it's not a disaster because people are buying tickets quite quickly and for Brighton we sold out for the previews you know six weeks before opening night so um, the idea is obviously really popular Jaws is obviously still as popular as ever Um, and I think people are intrigued um, you know at a behind-the-scenes uh, peak at you know on the orca so um, you know if critically it's a failure then we would probably you know try and address that rewrite things talk to people see what was you know what was wrong what what worked what didn't but yes I mean I think that hopefully um, it has a life beyond for how long i can't say i can't imagine wanting to do this for more than you know a couple of years but i i would i wouldn't rule it out at this point you know i mean you you, you took to youtube and put out a, a short rehearsal clip of the the famous you know section from the indianapolis speech that your your father delivered just it's just perfection for me but um the way you did it with the mannerisms and the way that your voice is and the, the characteristics and everything that you put into that performance, you you must have sat and read some of the comments that people left on social media. It You couldn't have been prepared for how great that response was. No, I was totally unprepared. Um, people, are, people have been really kind. I am bracing myself for some sort of backlash of negativity at some point because you know what the internet's like and twitter and all these things you you see other people um uh coming into getting into all sorts of um difficulties and um and so on and so forth and and so i am kind of bracing myself at some point you know i think some of the uh, the fans may not consider the play to be what they what they were hoping which is totally fair enough that's just the way things go um but yes i'm i am slightly riding high on on a wave of positivity from um the fans in that respect and i'm i'm very grateful for that because it it gave me the energy to complete the project you know when i watched it i just read a first the first five or six comments on youtube and people are just obsessed with jaws people don't just like jaws jaws is your life if you're a big fan of jaws you you own all the merchandise the 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 toys the dvd the video the blu-ray the 4k when it comes out everyone wants everything and it's it's a hard it must have been quite a a lot of pressure because you must have put it out and clicked that submit button and thought please no one turn on me (laughs) you know i don't want everyone to rip me to pieces for trying to imitate such a good performance but 
it was the opposite. I I absolutely sat there and was so proud because I was just like, yes, everyone's recognising this hard work and effort and it's done with so much respect. I think that's why people are, are loving it so much. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's probably the key um, thing to say. I think you've put your finger on it. it, it, it it's, it's, a, it's, it's a homage, yeah. you know, to the great, great work um, that they all put in. I'm, I'm enormously proud of my, of my dad. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but I'm also, you know, um, in awe of, of all the other, um, many people on that film who excelled themselves, you know. I, I always, I've said it during the interview today, but I always think he should have got the best supporting actor. I do. I think Jack Nicholson deserved the main... Uh, but, but I think as support, he should have got it. Yes, probably, actually, yeah. But yeah. people will argue with me, and people listening now will probably take to Twitter and tell me I'm wrong, but, you know, it's not... At least I stand by what I believe in. Yeah, well, that's what Twitter's for. Yeah, it's a, it's a nasty place at times. But um, one of the things when I was doing some research and looking at what you've done in your career, one of the highlights must be the fact that you got to work with Mark Rylance. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. No, he's the best actor I've ever worked with, in certainly in the theatre. Um, spellbinding. Um, wonderful. Uh, light, so light on his feet. Um, you know, but he could be heavy if he wanted to as well. Just, he's so mercurial and funny. Really yeah. funny. Um, so I, I did a Much Do About Nothing with him in the West End. Um, and I got a job, I got offered a job to do a film. And so I went to Thelma Holt, who was the producer at the time, and I said, well, I've got this film, can I possibly do it? And so we came to an arrangement, and I, I bought my way out of the play. And so then I was able to sit in the theatre and watch the thing from the perspective of the audience. And he was even better than I thought from standing next to him, you know. He was um, amazing. I, I bet you could learn so much just from watching him, being in the same room. It just, it's that's, you know, you, you, no textbook will teach you what you can learn from that. No, I mean, and you do learn, you do learn a few things, but you're, you do end up being a bit baffled as to how sometimes, uh, you know, these people can transform themselves so convincingly. And you've obviously had a, a long acting career. You've been in many, many different projects, but after this big one, which is so personal and from the heart, where do you see yourself going? Is there anything that you'd love to achieve that you don't think you have at this point in your career? Is there something, would you like to get behind the camera and direct and film? Or where is it your head's at? What would you like to achieve with the future that's ahead of you? I would absolutely love to um, direct. Um, you know, that would that's a very you know, fortunate position to be in. Um, all, all, almost all the aspects of of filmmaking, um, you know, intrigue me. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, I in the I, I imagine the most likely place for me to end up uh, is, you know, is continuing writing. Actually, yeah. um, So, you know, I would like to. I would dearly love to have um, a screenplay uh, made into 
you know, a feature film. Um, so that's kind of what I'm focusing on next. Um, but uh, who knows? Who knows what this will lead to? Um, there may be some opportunity um, if this works, touch wood. Yeah. And and as we sit here right now recording this interview, if people do want to check out this, The Shark is Broken, you've just told me that Brighton's already sold out so many weeks ahead, but what can they do? If people are obviously attending the Edinburgh Festival, that's uh, an opportunity to come and see you? Yeah, we're at uh, Assembly Festival Studio 3, you know, and we're there not every night in August because... So actually, I say night, it's, it's in the... Um, it's 11 o'clock in the morning, because yeah. that's where, you know, the theatre tends to be done in the first half of the day, and they tend to do comedy in the second half. So um, uh, we are doing another... I'm doing another play um, that I've adapted with Duncan Henderson, who's playing Scheider in Jaws. Um, we're huge fans of Damon Runyon, so we are alternating the shark is broken with you know two of damon runyon's short stories oh nice you're gonna be a busy yeah. man <laughs> yes is there any more shows going to be happening in brighton or are they all sold out or is, is there any uh, we will definitely uh return to brighton and and do a, at least a week uh here Brilliant. um in the autumn or or you know maybe a bit later because um, people were, were, have been badgering me and they're frustrated that they can't get a ticket. So, um, yeah, we would definitely do at least a week here. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate your time and coming on to the podcast today to talk about this, and it's now just left me wanting to just fast-forward straight to there and sit in Brighton, go to the sea, and then in the evening come and see your show. It just sounds so exciting, and I'm hoping that the next time I talk to you, you've just announced a a world tour because the the world want to see it that'd be nice thanks mark i really appreciate it so there it is there's me and ian shaw what a lovely guy what a great interview very personal he opened up and let his guard down a lot and talked all about those diaries of his father it can't have been easy reading those and for him to be that honest and open with me on this episode is very very flattering for me and I'm 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 very honored that he took the time out before this show and talked to me all about it and and if you guys were anything like me you would have listened to this interview and now all you want to do is go and see the shark is broken if you're one of the scottish listeners I suggest right now while the edinburgh fringe is just about to be on go and check this out I believe there are still tickets but it will probably sell out there's a number of showings and you really need to go and check it out because this is going to be unbelievable I'm so, so happy that he took the time to talk to me. And as you can probably hear, it's just been a dream come true. To hear those stories about his father, someone that I respect and have so much love for and I see as an absolute role model and idol of mine, it really is just absolutely awesome. I hope you've all enjoyed this interview as well. And I want to say a big thank you for Ian taking the time out because when this was recorded, he was rehearsing for the play and obviously time's very sacred. So to know he took the time out and spent it with me, it means the world. And as always, everyone, if you've really enjoyed today's episode, let me know. I love reading the people's feedback. You can go on to markandme.com and on there there's links to my Facebook page, my Twitter page, my Instagram or even email. 
You know this, I say it on every single episode, but it's very important to me. I read and reply to every single message I get. Even if there's 10,000 messages, I will sit there and reply to every single one. Because you taking the time to listen is why I do this. And then if you love it, then it's an absolute bonus. But it's a real important, and this one's a very personal one to me. And I love reading all the feedback. And also, if you really want to get involved with Mark and me, I do have a Patreon page. You can go on there and support me for as little as about $1 a month. So for us British listeners, it's about 70p. For that, you get... There's loads of stuff. There's like a monthly prize draw to win Funkos or sign merchandise or really cool exclusive gifts. There's loads and loads of different prizes up there and I'll be announcing them on the first of every month. Not only that, you're going to get a welcome pack after three months. You get some stickers and badges and loads of stuff like that. But also, all the money that goes into it goes straight back into the podcast. I don't actually pay myself anything. I have to renew and subscribe for bandwidth and for space to host the podcast. And when you get these big episodes, it takes a lot. So you have to pay a lot of money to host these episodes. But not only that, it allows me to travel and do more and more podcasts. And you know me, I love doing face-to-face stuff. So if I can ever get guests that are not too far from home, I will go there and put out these episodes for you. As always, everyone, you know what I like to do. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you who the next guest is, but it's only going to be a week away. And I've shown it to one of my very close friends the other day. He listened and told me it's the best thing I've done. So that's nice to kind of tease you with. But until then, I want you to take care, look after yourself, and I'll speak to you all in a week's time. No one likes us, I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try. But all around, even our old friends put us down. Let's drop the big one and see what happens. We give them money, but are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're hateful. They don't respect us, so let's surprise them. We'll drop the big one and pulverize them. Europe's too old, Africa's far too hot, and Canada's too cold. South America stole our name. Let's drop the big one, there'll be no one left to blame us. We'll save Australia. Don't wanna hurt no kangaroo. We're building all American. Park there, they got surfing too. Boom goes London, boom Perry. More room for you and more room for me. In every city, the whole world round, we'll just be another American town. Oh, how peaceful it will be. We'll set everybody free. You wear a Japanese Motor baby, be Italian shoes to me. They all hate us anyhow. So let's drop the big one now. Let's drop the